Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Well, good morning, Heidi. Good morning, Mom. It's great to talk to you. Good talking to you. I am in um, uh, Arizona. I mean, I'm not in Arizona. I'm in Texas. Very <laughs> Excuse good. me, Texans. I'm in our, our studios in Arizona. And Heidi's in New York, and I'm in Austin, Texas. And uh, I'm having quite the experience today. I'm down here as a bereaved parent, which is an um, interesting place to be. And I am at a special conference called the in- Initiative for Pediatric Palliative Care Educational Retreat. And if you listen to the show with Deborah Dawkins we had on on November 30th, Deborah talked a little bit about this palliative care initiative and uh, about what they're trying to do down here is, and the initiative, we're trying to, they're trying to get, and they do have it here, they have 125 people here at a retreat center, the crossings outside of Austin. Mm-hmm. And we have physicians here, we have nurses, we have respiratory therapists, we have um, inhalation therapists, we have all sorts of medical people down here, and along with them, we, ha- uh, we have social workers, and along with uh, these hospital-based people, we, they have asked bereaved parents to be part of the process. Okay, and what is the purpose of the conference? The purpose of the conference is to train people to work as a team, and the idea is to level hierarchies so that everybody's working for the same purpose for the patient and working with the family. And the family, the idea is that they're part of the system of making decisions. Mm-hmm. I love that. So it's, it's training the medical community and professionals that work with people that are grieving and are dying. It's to train them on how best to do that. And, and how to have the family as part of their team. The family's actually part of the team. I like that. So they, they incorporate the family in decision-making and in the team process. That's great. So we talk about different issues uh, during the day, and we talk about, uh, for instance, um, we're going to be talking about uh, the experience of professional caregivers in pediatric care, and they're including families as, those, as part of that. Well, I love it, Mom. This is so great because who, who knows better than a family that's been down that road? I mean, bereaved families and grieving families and families that have sick children are the experts in what works and what doesn't work as um, far as, you know, in the absolutely. medical community. I wanted everyone to know that a woman named Jan Wheeler, who has the Project Joy and Hope for Texas, and has been in honor of her daughter, Valerie, she is paying all of our room and board down here, all the parents. Oh, my gosh, that's amazing. Isn't that wonderful? And you can, fabulous. You can go on the Internet uh, to her, www.joyandhope.organization. And one of the reasons you might want to go on there is because they give sibling scholarships. What do you mean? Scholarships to brief siblings. Oh, that's great. For wow. college. That's wonderful. Through this organization in honor of their daughter, Valerie. And can anyone apply for the scholarship? I'm not exactly sure if you have to be from Texas or not, but I think it would be worth going. She told me they gave $100,000 away last year. And I don't think it's probably, um, you know, just Texas. Right. So anyway, she's paying for our room and board down here, which is we really appreciate that. Now, Now, what if I was a parent that really wanted to go to a conference and give my feedback and my advice to the medical profession? 
about what was helpful for me and what I think needs to change in the system. How would I go to one of these conferences? Can anybody go to a conference? I, you would at, get in touch with Deborah Dawkin, who was okay. on our show. Okay. And Deborah uh, was on, and you could email us about Deborah Dawkin. She was on the show on the 30th, so she could, you could listen there. Um, Deborah may even give her email on that show, or when we're on break, I'll, I'll look it up for you, and that's who you'd get a hold of if you wanted to, and I think it's a great idea. The next one's going to be in Monterey, California, at the end of uh, next month, and so um, it's going to start on the 27th of February. So uh, if you want to go to Monterey, California to a hotel down there and uh, be part of this, you might want to get in touch with Deborah, and I'll give you her email. Well, and like we've learned, Mom, from so many of our guests, oftentimes one of the ways we heal ourselves is to become active in our grief process. And this is such an important way to be active and to do something you know, positive and productive and turn our grief outward. I mean, oftentimes people aren't ready for this. But for those of you that are ready, um, this is a great way to kind of give back and to educate people so that, you know, they can learn from what's worked for you and what hasn't. Absolutely, and it's a wonderful, caring environment. It's been, we just had a panel of uh, five parents, and it was uh, really very moving, and and the we had 125 professionals listening very closely to what everyone was saying mm-hmm. and, and able to ask questions about mm-hmm. how parents felt and what they could do better. Wonderful. I wanted to talk a little bit about an email we got. Um, okay. We got an email from Canada, which we love to get them from out of the United States, right, mm-hmm. honey? Absolutely. And we it's just the Internet's so fabulous going all over the world. Our email came from Claudia. And uh, Claudia was talking about, uh, well, she actually, it's on our blog now. She actually sent it to the blog, so you can read it on our blog, thegriefblog.com. It's, uh, she talked about her son Matthew. He was a twin, and he died of something called vasopriva. And uh, vasopriva apparently is where the blood vessels are outside of the umbilical cord, and um, they got kind of squashed during birth. And and uh, her little boy Matthew uh, didn't make it through. And she talks about some of the um, ways that they can use a, a color Doppler, an ultrasound, to actually see if this uh, could possibly happen to you. So she's involved with, uh, she has a website, ourangelmatthew.com, you might want to go to. Mm-hmm. And uh, also she talks about the International Vasopriva Foundation. And again, Heidi, we love it when our parents become proactive like this, don't we? Yes, and become experts on the diseases that their children died from so that they can help prevent other kids from dying this way, which is what she's doing, it sounds like. Yep, exactly. And she's trying to get information out there to parents who may have this problem so it doesn't happen to them. Well, um, that is, Claudia, thank you for that email. It's great. I um, am, am down at in uh, Austin, Texas right now at the um, Initiative for Pediatric Palliative Care Educational Retreat. And that's a big a big bunch of words, but it's uh, 125 healthcare professionals that are trying to make the healthcare system more humane, and the way they're trying to do it is also by having bereaved parents, and I've been invited down as a bereaved parent. And I wanted to talk a little bit about being a bereaved parent. Hi, is that okay? I think that's wonderful. Go for it, Mom. Okay. Um, I wanted to tell you first what happened in my life, because we there was a panel today where um, a woman came on and talked a pretty much similar scenario to mine, mm-hmm. and uh, there are some things that I learned from listening to her that I thought were that I wanted to 
See, I wanted, I saw some changes that needed to be made in the system. Um, in 1983, my son Scott and his cousin were driving home from uh, going to dinner and a movie um, in Washington, D.C., and, and they'd been to a mall and they were uh, heading home from the movie. It was a huge rainstorm. And uh, they were driving, and we'll never know what happened, but um, they, uh, Matthew was driving the car, Scott's cousin, and um, he was only going the speed limit, they believe, because there were people who um, were behind him. And apparently he skidded and hit um, a bridge abutment, the Dolly Madison Chain Bridge, if people are from the Washington, D.C. area. And the car blew up. And well, the car didn't blow up right then. They hit the car. The, hydro, the car hydroplane, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, the car hydroplane. Heidi knows as much as I did because she's read the uh, reports. Right. But the car hydroplane hit the bridge abutment, and a couple of guys were be- from behind them. They were actually actors. They were in showboat in the Washington D.C. area, and they got out of the car and went up to the car and looked in, and they could see the boys hunched over. They both had safety belts on. And before they could open the car door, the car blew up, and the kids burned to death. Mm-hmm. So um, now one of the things, and, and I could go, you know, on with the story about it, it's hideous, as you all know out there. Any anybody that this has happened to, it's 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 incredible. And how I found out about it was, I was at my cousin's house. We were staying overnight, and uh, the telephone rang, and I got up. My cousin actually got up and answered the phone and said. Oh, no, 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 no. And I said, here, give me the phone. And I said, what is it? And uh, it was her husband. And he said two policemen were at his house. She was separated, actually. And two policemen were at his house, and they had uh, had the identification from two boys. And I said, are they both dead? And he said, yes. Horrible. I mean, there's no easy way to find out your child's been killed. No, no, terrible, terrible. Such a sh- And then you fall on the floor and scream and yell and right. all that kind of thing that, Unbelievable. But then the police came over to the house, and, you know, I really, those two officers, you can imagine two bereaved mothers, so those two officers came to the house, and I remember just wanting to be held, and, Mm -hmm. you know, and they did hold my hand. But, you know, what a a thing for them. And I would have now, and listening to this woman today, I wish I'd had the opportunity to go to the accident site at that time, you know, and, and see, I said I wanted to see the body, and the policeman said, no, you don't want to see the body. Well, so he was protecting you, but in hindsight, you would have been, you really needed to do that. Yeah, the thing was, I was a psychiatric nursing consultant to the surgical service at the University of Rochester at the time. So I was a real professional in the field, and I had worked with a lot of death and dying and, and been through a lot of that. And although it it was much worse than I had ever thought anything could be that you could even live through, um, the thing was, I I wanted to do that. I was I, I'd seen death. I was a nurse. I was. But really mom, even when you've seen death, it's your son. Yeah, but I still wanted to do it. Right, and I think that's important, regardless of your profession. If you really want to see a body and you really want to see the site, then that this is your this is your opportunity to do it, and your that should be your decision should be respected. Right, instead of someone saying no, no, you can't do that. Right. And then the next day, of all things, I was in Washington, D.C., and all of my cousin's friends, Heidi, my, uh, my husband and my 14-year-old daughter were out visiting Heidi and Rebecca mm-hmm. in Utah. And uh, so they, w- and I went down to Washington, D.C. It was over Easter break. And um, I was sitting there, and all my f- cousin's f- 
friends were flooding the house, and she was showing the picture of her son, Matthew, and all that. And so they were grieving for Matthew. Yeah, who, they all Matthew, knew him. Who yeah. is Matthew. And I am sitting there thinking, i got to leave. i got to get out of here. Because your support system wasn't there. Right. That must oh. have felt really lonely. I mean, here you are with your son that died, but the, everybody's grieving the death of Matthew. Yeah, no, Scott. It was terrible, and so I all the I just couldn't take it anymore. And I suddenly said, "I've got to leave." Mm-hmm. And so I said, "I'm leaving," and people were like, "Oh, you're leaving?" And I said, "Yeah, I have to go." So I packed my car, and these people drove me out of town. I was driving from Washington to Rochester, New York, which was is about 350 miles. Mm-hmm. And so the the thing I learned later, which really I found really, and I was really very mad about it, is they. I was supposed to go past the accident site oh. to go up. They drove me all the way around so I wouldn't see the accident site. Because the accident site was only a couple of miles from Aunt Belle's house. Yeah. And oh, I oh. didn't have the presence of mind to go to the accident site. Right. I would have, you know, I would have loved it. Wouldn't you have loved to see seen the accident site, Heidi? Absolutely. And I did see it, but it was a while, it was later. And remember you found buttons or we something? We found buttons from his Levi's, which were very, it was important to me to find them and, you know, hold them and realize that they had been on his pants. But, um, yes, I think, and, you know, it just it just brings back so many times when we have guests on when they say, you know, one of the things that helped us the most in the hospital is that the nurses had the wherewithal to ask me if I wanted to hold my child and to allow me time with my child to grieve the loss of my child who had died. You know, because sometimes, like you said, you weren't able to make those decisions. It would be have been nice if someone had come in and asked you, "Do you want to see the the site? We'll drive you there." Which is exactly the point that I found out today. I heard today we were talking about parents whose kids died in the hospital and getting support later on, and how they got support later, but it wasn't long enough. And I heard this woman up there whose son was killed immediately, like Scott was. Only mm-hmm. she even went to the scene, and they wouldn't let her near the body for an hour and a half. Oh. So that was very traumatic for her. Right. But I just thought, you know what? Paramedics, there should be people that go out after paramedics. That are there like support staff? Yeah, for families. All of our, everybody who has sudden death and never makes it to the hospital is not getting any support. Right, right. I mean, crucial time. Yeah, why wasn't there ongoing support? Why didn't the paramedics, I'm not saying they should do it, but why wasn't there somebody who rides out with them or comes out later or follows up with the family? There's nothing. Right, right. The families are left on their own, on at, their own, at completely. the worst time in their lives, yes. the worst possible moment to be alone. And and those key moments when seeing, going to doing what you want to do, being respected, maybe help some of the grieving process. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, the regrets, I'm sure um, a lot of folks out there know what I'm talking about, things that they would have done. Well, I've gone know. to funerals, several funerals, in fact, where women, especially women, mothers, have been sitting there and family members have said, don't look at the casket, even though it's an open coffin. An open casket, don't look. It would be too hard, and they've, they've kept them away from those things. And later, these, you know, a few women have said, I regretted not saying that. I'm angry that people kept me away. Yes, I even uh, was involved at a conference once where a woman was actually carrying a picture mm-hmm. of her son at the mortuary because her husband had seen him but didn't want her to see him. Right. So sometimes people are doing things that they think are helpful, but actually it's it's not helpful. Right. You're, you're being too overprotective. But it would have been, as I said, I wanted the police to, you know, be there for me. And, of course, you know, they're they're not going to stay, all, you know, for an right. hour and follow-up. Right, and they've also got up. boundary violations. I mean, they've got boundaries, and if you're hugging them, you know, 
they have their own training that they've they've had. If hopefully they've had it, I think it must be very shocking for some of them that haven't. And what a thing they have to do. I agree. I can't imagine anything worse than telling someone you've never met that their child has died or their sibling has died. Yeah, horrible. And we were fortunate. Later on, we had the finances to go back to Washington D.C. to have somebody from the police department pick us up, take us to the accident site, take us to see the car, mm-hmm. and to um, do all those things that w- that really make you realize that it really happened. And you know, there's such a denial at first, isn't there? Absolutely. I mean, I, I completely understand when people say, especially some of the 9/11 families I, I see, they say, "Well, I thought for a year or two that he was actually alive." and was walking around the city with amnesia, I understand that. Because when Scott died, I really believed in my heart of hearts that Scott and Matthew had been kidnapped and somebody else was in that car. It was not them. Mm -hmm. They had been kidnapped because there's no way 17-year-old boys in the prime of their lives, healthy, happy, you know, physically fit, die suddenly. It just doesn't happen. Absolutely. And you go through that yearning and searching stage that I'm sure everyone knows about. I had a stiff neck from looking, seeing people with blonde hair and thinking that might be them. I still occasionally see Scott, and it's very bizarre because I know rationally that that's impossible. Sometimes I'll run up and it's not him. And I'm like, I can't believe it's still this many years later. I occasionally think I see him. Right. Yes. And, um, you know, people say to me, I'm at a national conference um, in Austin, Texas right now, and uh, I'm with some bereaved parents because we're, it's bereaved parents being part of the healthcare team. It's very interesting talking to the newly bereaved parents because a very newly bereaved parent said to me today, um, you never get over it, right? And I said, oh, you never forget, and the memories become sweet. And she said, oh, that's what I want to hear. I don't want to hear you don't get it, never get over it. Well, you know, I'm always saying this. I think that you can't get over something like this, but you learn to live with it, you learn to go on, you learn to have a lot of positive life experiences, and you learn to be in a very different place than the place you're in now. If You know, if someone had told me that the pain that I was in initially would never end, I would not want to go on living. Absolutely. I mean, it is just so excruciatingly painful, isn't it? Absolutely. The grief is always, on some level, you always miss that person. And like you said, Mom, you're in search even 23 years later. But the pain is gone. The pain is no longer there. You occasionally will get waves of pain, but it's you will rebound from those waves very quickly after 23 years. Absolutely. And there um, could be a smell or a sound or a sight or something that will trigger you. Or, but, or an event in your life. Yep. I mean, I miss Scott terribly, but he, it doesn't. it's not the first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning. It's not the last thing I think about before I go to bed. You know, I'm not crying all day long, and that's what was happening for me and you, Mom, initially. Absolutely. Yeah, you want to talk a little bit. I was saying where I was, and I drove back to Rochester, New York. And Mm -hmm. could you talk a little bit about where you were? And then I want to talk a little bit about our experience at the funeral home and and with the loss. Okay, and then how we moved on from there. Yeah. Um, Let's see. I was at the University of Utah. I was a student there. And I got a call, you know, somebody came to our door. It was a distant relative. It was a relative of my father's who I actually didn't know very well. My father knew him very well. but I, I had called him. Right, from, you had called him. From the he east. Came, he came to the house, so my father was with me and my two sisters. And they knocked on the door and told us that there had been a horrible accident. And we asked what had happened. They eased us into the fact that he had died. They didn't just blurt it out, which I found a better way to do it. There's no good way, but they they ended up telling us in the third sentence that he had been killed and died and that Matthew had died as well. 
and we all cried and screamed. And I remember he had a son with him who was probably in his 20s. And like you said, Mom, all I wanted to do is be held. Mm-hmm. And I threw my arms around this, this 20-year-old who didn't even know me and was hysterical, and he was very stiff. Mm-hmm. I will never forget that. And he was rigid, and he did not want me. He couldn't handle it. He, and that really upset me because I was in such a vulnerable place. And um, so it was, it was a bad night. I mean, we shook. It was, you know, all the, all the physical things, not just emotional, but the physical things you go through when you find this out was really what we went through. And it's we, such an adrenaline hit. It's like hitting a brick wall straight on. And you're sick, too. I mean, yeah. I was sick physically. I threw up. And, you know, all those shaking and shock. And we got in the car, and it was a really bad snowstorm that night. We were driving to the airport, and we were, I was terrified we were all going to die in the car. Mm-hmm. Because here we'd had the death of Scott, and we knew that people die suddenly before their time. So now who is going to be next? And we got to the airport, and we flew back to Rochester, New York, which is where, where I grew up. And it was a very long flight. And I remember we had, oh, no, that was another time. The Charlie McCarthy doll. We had my brother's Charlie McCarthy doll at one point, and we brought it in the airplane because we had two funerals. We had a double funeral for the boys together, and we put we put him in a seat and we buckled him in. We were actually laughing. It was actually a good a good. That's thing. the the black humor or the right the, the rough humor that you have when you have a, a a close family member die. Humor kind of helps you survive. Right, and and unfortunately, when you're around other people that have gone through the loss, they understand that. But outsiders don't understand that. Yeah, they can't figure out how to weird. laugh. And laughing is an emotion. And it's a way of releasing some of the tension and anxiety and stress we're feeling after a death. So um, that's how I found out. It totally turned my life upside down. I dropped out of school. I could not function. I could not read. I couldn't even read a novel, let alone schoolwork. And you're a big reader. I love reading. I, I love reading novels. I mean, I just devour novels, yeah. So for me... At that point, I needed to take a six-month break. I had to, and I did. And I think I've said before, we, I had a public speaking um, thing that I had to do for a class two weeks after Scott died, and I told the teacher I couldn't do it. And she said, well, why? Your brother's been dead for two weeks. He should be over it by now. All right, of course. I was completely blown away by that statement. It was interest, interesting at 20 how quickly your friends think you should be over it. 20-year-olds do not want you to be grieving. They don't want they want you to be happy and fun and carefree and all those things. Uh-huh. So uh they wanted me to get back to the normal me. Yeah. Who I always who I was before Scott's death and I I'm I ended up getting back to a positive place but I w- I would never be that same person. What did you need for your for the folks out there as a teen, as a 20-year-old? What did you need from from the world? I needed the world to acknowledge and validate how hard it is to have a brother die. And to really get it, to understand my pain. And I felt like the world did not understand how, how much pain I was in. It was and they annoying. asked you about your parents, right? Right. They asked me, and my parents were in amazing amounts of pain, which was very hard for me to see. I had never seen my parents that vulnerable ever in my entire life. I'll never forget when my mother, when your mom, your two siblings, your two sisters came right. into the house and you guys huddled together and cried in a, in a hug, in a huddle. And I looked over and I said, wow, siblings are amazing. It made me miss my brother even more, but I looked at that sibling bond. And it was very hard for me to see my mom so vulnerable. And just, you know, even if your parents aren't telling you they're vulnerable, the look in their eyes, you Mm -hmm. see it. You see it by just looking at them. And so parents are worried about their kids, but uh, your kids are worried about you. Kids are worried about you. 
And that's why a lot, oftentimes we don't show our grief because we feel like you've been through enough and we don't want to cause you any more pain. Mm-hmm. And if we grieve in front of you, it's going to, it's going to, we feel like it might hurt you. It might cause you more pain because you are grieving yourself. Could you talk a little bit about seeing the body? Um, seeing the body for me was very important. And I felt like I needed that kind of proof. And some people don't have bodies. I mean, you can only do what you can do. So that's not an option. Um, but we did have the option. I mean, Scott was burned on how much of his body, Mom? 90? Like 99%. Yeah. 99%. He had so, a foot shown. So we, they mummied him and put him in his baseball uniform, and his right foot was exposed, and it looked normal, which was amazing to me. But seeing that foot was so important, and, and hugging him and holding him and touching the foot. I mean, it's amazing how important that was for me and I think for the family. I would speak for the whole family. Now, for, for our folks out there who didn't have that opportunity or didn't want to or did what they thought they should do, um, one of the things I think we're finding out, Heidi, is it doesn't make any difference down the road. Right. I mean, people initially say, well, it's easier if you have a body, and initially that might be true, but down the road, mourning is mourning and people aren't that. Grief is grief, and I still didn't have Scott. Yeah, so I'd say to you folks out there, if you wished you'd seen the body and you didn't or there was something that you wished you'd done, if you think that you might be grieving better or somebody might tell you, not necessarily so, right, Heidi? Right. I think for me, the thing that it did for me is that I didn't believe I was in denial. I didn't believe that he had died. And so it just made the reality happen a little quicker. You'll eventually get there anyway. Right, exactly. But I felt like I really be- I know he's dead now. I think that it gives you start. kind of a kick start, you know, when you right. see him. It, it kind of, you know, that denial place, it kind of shocks you a little. Exactly. And you're like, oh, my gosh, it is him. This really did happen. This isn't a bad dream. Exactly. So, so uh, one of the things I want to say to you folks out there um, with Heidi uh, and me and with the rest of the family, I did worry tremendously about Heidi. Heidi dropped out of school. We were concerned about her. We were concerned about all the kids, what was going to happen to them. We didn't feel like particularly good parents, and I don't think we were particularly good parents. Do you, Heidi, or do you have any thought on that? I guess, in hindsight, now that I'm older, I feel like you guys did the best that you could do, and I think parents are too hard on themselves because they often think, I'm not being a good parent. I should be there 100% for my children, but you've, you know, you've had the death of your child. So, I mean, I think you did the best that you could at the time. I know that doesn't help. But parents are always saying to me, what could I do for my child? I'm in so much pain. What what would be helpful? And I always say, if I could give you only one piece of advice as parents, just one piece of advice, I would say, and I've said it on the show before, go to your children and say, look, I know what it's like to lose a child. And I know how hard and horrible it is to lose a child. But I have no idea what it's like to lose a sibling. And I just wanted to let you know that if there's anything I can do that I'm here because I don't know what it's like, and it must be really hard for you. It must be horrible. This was your sibling. This was someone you were supposed to grow old with. This was someone that was supposed to be in your life forever, and, and you're no longer here. Yeah. I don't know. Some of the things that come up for me are how families grieve differently, husband and wife, and uh, and uh, the kids, the siblings, how they are the forgotten mourners, right, Heidi? Absolutely. They're the ones that are forgotten and that are unacknowledged. In fact, there is going to be something at NYU School of Social Work in a couple of weeks. Somebody there has done a study called The Forgotten Ones, The Grief Experience of Adult Siblings of World Trade Center Victims, and you know I'm going to be there on the first row because that is our biggest complaint, I think, 
Sometimes we don't voice it because we don't even think we have the right to voice it. We don't feel acknowledged in our loss. You know, I'm down at this uh, in pediatric palliative care educational retreat in Austin, Texas right now, and uh, we uh, the parents got together. There are 19 uh, bereaved parents who got together because we're working with the um, health care staff as being part of the community trying to educate health care workers and about our loss and, how to, and also how to help them to learn how to help families. And one of the things uh, David Browning said, are there any thoughts here among you parents? And I raised my hand and I said, I would be remiss if I, for my daughter Heidi if I didn't say there are no siblings here. Mm-hmm. So the siblings were on, they were, they were not there. Yeah, there was no sibling there, although this is a family thing and it could in, include siblings, of that's course. That's a great point. And I think that siblings are the forgotten mourners at the hospitals. Well, that's another thing. If, if you've got a child that's sick, all the time and energy is going towards that child. And oftentimes the children that are well feel like, what about me? Absolutely. Nobody's looking at me. Nobody's giving me gifts. Nobody's talking about me. It's always about my sick sibling. And also, sometimes they're not allowed to go to the hospital when the kids are in critical care. And, and even when they're not in critical care, at certain hours, children are not allowed in the hospital. You know, and I agree with you on certain wards, and it's hard because you want to include the siblings in this. And the sick sibling wants to see their siblings. Absolutely. And the other person, I think, gets pushed out a bit are the husbands because it is a female community. Mm. With all the nurses, it mainly are nurses. Right. And uh, eventually, the you know, if you've got a kid in intensive care or whatever, it, it seems like we end up with a lot more women there on a regular basis than men are at work and whatever. But it can become sort of an unfriendly environment for them, too. Right, right. And it leads into that idea that sometimes uh, men's grief is not acknowledged. Mm-hmm. Or they need to be strong. People assume they're going to be the strong ones, and they expect that out of them. Yeah, and that's why we had Eric on today because he would address real men do cry. Absolutely, and um, one of the other things that happens is, and I, I saw it on the panel today. One of the men was talking about it is that they can also be the ones that stand up to the doctors and get mad, and you know that's not a fun place to be where you're the one who has to. You be, have to be the heavy. Yeah, you have to be the heavy. Yeah. So men sometimes, and then they get put in that position. So that, that's difficult. Well, Heidi, talk about some of the things that you've gone on to do since uh, Scott's death because one of the things I want to say, and I said it earlier, is we do worry about our kids um, as parents. Will they get over it? Will they move on? Will yeah. this ruin their whole life? Right, and I guess one of the things I want to tell parents is this event, this death of my brother and my cousin, defined my life, but it did not destroy my life. It has defined my life. It has changed my life. It has changed who I am. And not all in bad ways. I feel like I'm a more mature person. I'm more empathic. I, I appreciate life more. I appreciate my family more because I know what it's like to have a brother that has died and lose my brother. Um, so it, it will define your children's lives. It in no way destroys your children's lives. Um, your children are more resilient than you will ever know. And they will rebound and they will go on to have positive, a positive life despite this horrific, horrible event that has happened in their lives. Absolutely. So you've got to have some trust and faith there. And they may go through some bad patches. You know, my younger daughter went through some very rough years, and it was rough for us. Right. So, and waves. I mean, we definitely have times that are good and times that are bad. Absolutely. And the thing is, you have a big black hole and you throw everything into the grief hole. Everything's because they're grieving. Well, teenagers go through go through situations and 20-year-olds. And, you know, we, they have bad and good times whether they've had a sibling die or not. Right. Or whether you've had a child die or not. Exactly. And, Mom, and looking at you and where you are, you're in such a different place than you were originally. And it's, it's a similar process. I mean, 
you were in such a grieving, difficult space initially. Absolutely, and I left the university and went back to school because I was working with bereaved, I mean, families on a surgical service. And to get out of it in a in a way that I could do it gracefully, I ended up going back to school. Um, mm-hmm. And so they're different, you know. So I am a different person, as we all say. There's a life before and after, but it's great. Uh, what an opportunity to do this show, uh, right, Heidi? This show is so amazing, and our guests just inspire me every day. They truly do, because I realize if they can get through what they've gotten through, I can get through anything that life will throw at me because life is going to throw you hurdles over and over. I mean, no one gets through this world easily. It's not possible. So, um, yes, it, they, they inspire me. Absolutely, and, yeah. Like you said, our, our, lives are, our lives are like two books. I mean, it's, it's the, they've got a couple of chapters. My life is the chapter before Scott's death and the chapter after. And underneath there's a lot of different segments to that. Absolutely. So, so um, we give you all uh, our love and uh, courage to go on and, and tell you that we love doing this show for you and we appreciate you as our listeners. So, Heidi, it's time to close the show today, and I want to thank you for being on with me. Thanks, Mom. This is, this is great. This is, this is very nice. and It was good for us to be able to tell our story, too, because it's healing. It heals me every time I, I tell it. Absolutely. And Heidi had said earlier, you know, we really ought to do a show for to hear our story, and I thought, what a great idea. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.